Well, hey, cousins, you are listening to Revolutionary Hood Rat with Kim Young, a dope black social worker. And welcome back. Y'all, I did not think I would be back this soon with another episode, but just, hell, things have been happening and I I just need to talk to y'all. So here I am. And I'm excited to be able to be here once again in this space, sharing some time with y'all. So let's just go ahead and jump right into it. So our revolutionary news for the week goes out to George Talaferro. So if y'all are not familiar with George Talaferro, um, he was the first Black quarterback to play in the NFL and the first Black man to be drafted by an NFL team back in the 40s. So George Talaferro graduated from Howard University with his master's in social work. Um, and he taught at Morgan State, Maryland University, and Indiana University. And the good homie George used his platform for racial equity starting from the 40s all the way through the course of his life. And if y'all didn't know about this revolutionary baddie, he also happened to be a, a Capricorn. And he lived a revolutionary and glorious 91 years before passing away in 2018. And so I just felt the need to uplift OGs, right? Ancestral OGs like George Talaferro, so that more of us can dive deeper into the history and impact of people throughout this profession of social work that we may not have learned about when we were in grad school to continue to increase the visibility of Black and Brown folks in this work. Because like I've always said, we've been here. We belong here and we're not going anywhere. So shout out to George Talaferro and all of the work that he has done. The students he's touched, those who have been influenced by his life, his story, his legacy, and his work. And if y'all don't know about George, please, I encourage you to do your own research and learn. I'm going to spell his last name for you so you can get on the Googles. First name is George. Last name Talaferro, spelled T-A-L-I-A-F-E-R-O. Look into the good homie. I promise you, you will not be disappointed. So what might be disappointing or not, I'm not sure, is our Earth is Ghetto for the week. Because obviously, one of the primary reasons I plug this microphone in yet again is to talk about Mother God. Because now it's over. The finale has occurred. We got the third episode. And my word. My, oh, okay. Where do we even begin? Do we start with Dr. Phil? Do we start with them filing for 501c3 status? Y'all don't even know they did that. Do we start with the fact that this hole was turning blue and dying? I don't even know where to begin, but let me just start right here. Let me tell y'all how much I'm impressed. I think I mentioned last week, I have not been this excited about some white mess since Lion, or well, Tiger King, I almost said Lion King, <laughs> since Tiger King. However, I was not impressed with Tiger King because Buddy's locked up. Right, he's incarcerated. They got him in the clank clank. I am fully impressed with these people from the mother God because everybody is free. Everybody is free. And what they were able to accomplish is like, my mind can't process it. Like it makes sense, but it doesn't make sense all at the same time. There's just so much that was happening over the course of that docu-series and over what like, I think she had been running that cult for like maybe 15 years or some shit like that, almost 20 years. And to have that level of commitment and buy-in from her followers um, who till this day still believe, still believe everything and are keeping the message alive. Some of them are roommates now. Some have started their own ventures. Some are just in the desert doing meth to together in a trailer Either way, they found community and they just kept that shit intact. 
they kept that shit intact so with this third and final episode it's complete spoilers if you haven't figured that out by now but like with this first the third and final episode it started with a tiktok video of what happened to be amy carlson's daughter who was talking about it talking about her mother having a cult in this very nonchalant way (laughs) and then from there they continue to dive into the declining of her health of the escalation of their antics and behavior of the entire cult like moving across well shit across the ocean so they moved to hawaii and then when they got over to hawaii because you know if y'all didn't know robin williams is on their etheric team and so Robin Williams sends them signals from the starship that gives them guidance on what to do. Are you following me? So Robin Williams has sent a signal and told them that they had to get Mother God and everybody to Hawaii because that was just going to be better for all of their energy fields or whatever the fuck they're talking about. Long story short, they take their white asses to Hawaii on that same bullshit and start talking about and proclaiming that Mother God is the goddess Pele, which is a deity for the, you know, the indigenous homies in Hawaii. And they was like, oh, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Like, y'all will not come over here with that white fool. You better Pele your ass up off this island. They got the mayor involved. Folks was outside the house protesting. They was breaking car windows and shit. Like, Mother God is all inside of the house. I don't know what I've done to deserve this. You came over here being white and ignorant. You got to go. So they put their ass off the island. And this is all after they had set a house on fire because the girl was trying to smudge it. Because then they go again doing some indigenous practices. They asses ain't got no business fooling with. So the girl trying to smudge the house Burnt the whole shit down. Burnt the shit down. Burnt that bitch down. Anyways, they put the people off the island, so they come on back to the mainland, and the lady is still dying. Amy Carlson, Mother God, is turning blue because they are giving her um, colloidal silver, I think is what it's called, as a part of her medicine. Um, so she's turning blue. The The followers are, are still live streaming to raise money they getting paypal um to come they did a gofundme account they selling stardust and candle and shit and if y'all didn't know towards the end of mother god's life somebody had the foresight to go file for 501c3 status to get their entire love is one movement as a nonprofit. somebody over there was thinking big and i'm real like this goes back to me being incredibly impressed by these people anyways you know, the lady go ahead and she dies. And in a very nice resort looking room, if that room was nice. If you watch the documentary, it was looked like it was in the wilderness somewhere, but it was like a lodge. It had nice interior. Anyway, the lady is up in the bed dead. And um, Father God, the one who does all the drugs and shit and eats pizza and listens to classical music, proclaims all the followers that actually mother god is not dead she's still here with us and they start to believe what this man is saying and keep saying well yeah because the energy field is registering a 300 400 on her skin when we put this machine up to it so she has to be god she has to be here with us and i'm thinking well y'all hoes then pumped her with a whole bunch of silver that's likely what the goddamn machine is picking up on that lady is dead in the bed dead 
so the staff from the hotel is trying to get into the room to be like, what the hell y'all got going on in here? And they don't let them in the room, but then they realize we probably need to go ahead and get up out this hotel. So then they go in the middle of the night, load the corpse of Mother God into a van, pack all their shit up and get on the road. On the way to wherever they were going, I guess to find the starship, the police pulls them over. And the police is shining cars, like a flashlight in the car, and they got Mother God in the the corpse of Mother God in the back seat, wrapped up in like blankets and a hoodie and some sunglasses and shit. And the police don't do nothing, just let them go. Like they didn't see that blue corpse in the back seat, pasty as a bitch. And they just let her go. Let the whole van just go. Anyways, these people settle in the forest. And when I say settle in the forest, they set up camp. And Mother God got her own tent with Father God. They set up a camp. They still going into town to get Wi-Fi, to be able to live stream, to raise more money from Mother God's ascension. Because if you're following me, she's not dead. She is ascending because Robert, Robert Robin Williams has still got to come down from the galactic starship to come get her corpse, corpse. And they begin to like look up at the moon at night and be like, Robin, what are you waiting on? Come and get mother. Mama's ready. I was like, oh my God. The fuck am I watching? Because I can't turn it off. Anyways, yet again. They get tired of being in the forest, so they pack all their shit up, and they go back to Colorado. And they end up at the home of a gentleman that we have known as Michael. They go into Michael's house with the corpse. They get settled in. Michael is like, huh, some don't seem right here. Michael called the police. He told the police what's going on about how these people got into his house and he didn't necessarily want them to be in the house and that that lady was dead in his house. The police is confused. Michael a little confused. Long story short, they go in the house. They get the body. They arrest the people. Nobody is charged with anything because the police can't really figure out what the hell is actually going on. And then apparently all that fundraising and money that they got, they have an account with about $330,000 that Michael, a.k.a. Miguel, allegedly makes off with. So I'm going to tell y'all like this. I'm incredibly impressed by Miguel, the brown homie that got away with all of this shit. Because he was wrapped up in it from what the documentary showed. And Miguel, who was cosplaying as Michael, <laughs> as a part of these white people's foolishness, allegedly walked away with $330,000. I'm not going to hold you. I'm team Miguel. And I feel like he earned every bit of that alleged money if he actually took it. If he actually took it. So now that Mother God is done, I'm on to the next because, well, I'm going to take me a little break from some white mess, I think, and maybe jump on some Tubi. I'll figure this shit out. But, you know, I got to stay in the fold because now HBO has released a new docuseries called The Garden, Commune or Cult. And I remember this group because they got big on TikTok. I'm not on TikTok, but there was a Vice documentary about them. And I was like, oh, there's some shit right here. Oh, this some this some shit right here. And so that's going to be the next thing that we can watch together. It's called The Garden. It is on HBO Max. 
So it's the garden, commune, or cult. I'm probably going to pick that up next week and be back with some more white mess. I'm going to be back with some more white mess. Um, but in some other Earth is Ghetto news, I would be remiss if I didn't mention a little bit about Young Thug and this RICO um, trial that just started in Georgia. So Young Thug and the YSL um, collective, that's the language I'm choosing to use. They're on trial for some RICO, for RICO charges in Georgia. And yesterday during the opening of the trial, Young Thug's attorney provided us with the definition of thug. And he said, for young thug, thug means truly humbled under God. Truly humbled under God. That's what Jeffrey believes when he says his moniker, his rap name is Young Thug, that he is truly humbled under God. Let me tell you something. That lawyer delivered a, a passionate opening statement where he almost had my ass convinced that that's what that shit means. I respect the hustle because they also said pushing P means pushing positivity. When I tell you I love black folks a long way, this is the shit I be talking about. This is the shit I be talking about. What I don't be talking about when I say I love black folks a long way is Diddy because the kingdom of Diddy is crumbling. I'm not going into no details, but all I know, if you settle in less than 24 hours and all of a sudden you're losing all of your jobs and nobody has come out to stand on your side and deny any of these claims after woman, after woman, after incident, after incident comes to light, baby, the kingdom of Diddy has crumbled. And this is just the beginning. Like a lot of folks have been saying, this is simply just the beginning. More will come, not just about Diddy, but like about all these other men inside of the music industry, baby. I remember I was around for the days of Superhead and all of that. It's it's about to get spicy. It's about to get spicy. Um, lastly, Beyonce. Y'all know how I feel about Beyonce and Renaissance. So Renaissance, the film, is preparing to release, I think, this weekend, if I'm not mistaken. So they had the premiere earlier this week, and everybody looked gorgeous. They were serving look after look, silver after silver, like chest up, boobs out, waist snatched, hair laid, everything. They, every, folks looked phenomenal. And Beyonce looked a little translucent. I don't know if it was the lighting, if it was the slick back platinum hair, but they had B looking a little clear. And it left me confused. I know Mama Tina had to get on the internet and correct y'all hoes because what you're not going to do is call Beyonce no white woman. Because that's not what Beyonce, Janelle's, uh, Janelle, what is it, Giselle? knows Carter is. Carter is. She's not no white woman, but she was looking clear at the premiere of Renaissance. But we still gonna put some respect on Beyonce's name, but I just didn't understand why they had baby looking like that. They could have fixed that in post-production or something. Now she Beyonce. She owned the internet. You know what I'm saying? And last, before we move into some tales from the trap, Capricorn season is in 23 days. I repeat, Capricorn season is in 23 days. And this is the reoccurring reminder that we want both Christmas holiday gifts and birthday gifts. Do not combine our shit. You have 23 days to comprise an effective plan where we get both a holiday related gifts and birthday gifts. Once again, do not combine our shit. 
Capricorn season is in 23 days and we want separate gifts. Okay? Hear me now. Hear me good. Now let's get into some tales from the trap. All right. So for the tales from the trap this week, I figured I'll talk a bit about my transition away from macro practice of direct service because I shared a post earlier this week about how like direct service is no longer my ministry. And so I figured I would provide some context around what that means, what my transition looked like, and what some practical skills or tips or things that folks could look towards when they are also thinking about their transition away from direct service. Um, So for me, my last direct service job was in 2019. So I have not worked in direct service, meaning providing any direct clinical services to an individual or to a family in a community mental health setting, a private practice or office-based setting, a hospital setting, a residential treatment setting, school setting, none of that. I have not provided any individual clinical services to a soul (laughs) since September of 2019. And when I tell you I am so grateful to have been able to make that transition, but also to have had, um, what's that, like 11 years prior to stepping away from direct service under my belt, because it makes me a better meso-level practitioner, which I'll talk about. So my transition away from direct service, I did not take it lightly, nor was it easy to do per se. It just was time. Um, so when, and I don't even remember making the conscious decision that was like, I'm done with direct service. I'm going to find a role or a job that does not deal in that space anymore. I didn't even make that conscious effort because truth be told, I wasn't in a place to be able to think that far in advance. I had literally at that moment in my career, I had quit my job doing direct service without having another job lined up. Cause I was just done. I could not do it anymore. So when I quit my job, it was at this moment in my career and in my life where I really felt myself at this impasse where I had to make some really critical decisions around like, which way was I going to go? Um, I had, I've been licensed as a clinical social worker since 2016 and um, had been providing primarily residential-based services, hospital-based services, school-based services, and community mental health setting services um, since 2011. Yes, since 2011. And so I have a wealth of knowledge when it comes to doing individual and direct service-related work, if that's case management, care coordination, actual like therapeutic interventions, running groups, family work, hospital-based interventions, school-based interventions, residential-based interventions. So like I have a wealth of knowledge underneath my belt, which is critical. I don't take for granted the career that I've had and the jobs and the roles that I've filled because they've all taught me so many lessons about the things that I like, the things that I don't like, the populations that I can work with, populations that I cannot work with, settings that I can work within, settings I cannot work within, right? They taught me so much to be able to inform the decisions that I made later on in my career. And so I'm saying that all to also be able to impart that, y'all, you 
got to put in some level of work. I'm not trying to sound like the people who's like, you got to get it out the mud. You got to struggle too. Hell no. Like, I don't want anybody to have to struggle. Like, things should get easier with every generation. However, when it comes to, like, this heart work, human-centered service work, you got to be able to put in some level of work, which is to say plainly, you cannot go from grad school straight into private practice. You will not be a good private practice therapist, social worker, counselor, nothing. You got to get some experience working in other settings. Nobody should be trying to jump from grad school straight into private practice without at least touching community-based level care. Institutions may not be for you, meaning like jails, detention centers, hospitals, schools. That may not be courts, right? That may not be for you, but baby, having some experience in a community-based mental health setting will make, it will influence and hopefully make you a better practitioner wherever you land after that. So I'm grateful for that time that I had. And I encourage other people like you need that experience too. You are not ready for private practice, full-time private practice. When you graduate from a graduate program, you need to go put some work in. Like if you ain't been cussed out yet, you need to go put some work in. Somebody got to cuss you out at least one good time. If you ain't had to almost break up a fight, baby, then I don't know if you're ready to go. You couldn't be my therapist or nothing. Right. You got to be able to go put in some time because you learn so much about yourself by working in these other settings with a variety of clients and client populations to better help you define, like, who are your people? Because you don't really know until you start doing the work and working in other settings where you really find who your people are. And so I did that for about 11 years. I did direct service primarily with youth and young adults. I did family stuff. I worked with adults when I was in the hospital setting. And I did that solely to challenge myself because from 2008 up until 2000 and what was that? 14 or 15, I had only worked with youth and adults and then like families, right? Because the parents and caregivers were never with adults. So I said, Kim, like you need to go figure out and learn about that population. So I went and got me a job working at the psych hospital. And when I tell you that made me a better practitioner, um, it made me a better person too, by taking on that role at the psych hospital and saying, I'm going to work on the adult unit. Don't put me on the the um, adolescent unit. Put me on the adult unit so that I can get that experience. And so having that, like I said, it just made me a better practitioner. And so making the transition, it didn't come with intention. And I don't know if that's for better or worse, but it really didn't. I just had to quit my job. I couldn't take it anymore. I was exhausted and I use the analogy of like taking one baby out the river at a time when more babies are just rushing down the river and you like, how do all these babies keep getting in the goddamn river? Like what is going on? Me doing it one at a time is getting exhausted. I'm overwhelmed. Um, My morals are being compromised. I'm literally and figuratively watching kids and families die. Like I'm watching the system cause this incredible amount of harm. And I'm literally just sitting in an office with a young person trying to patch up a hundred wounds at a time to send them back into a household or back into a community that's going to pull those bandages off or they're going to bleed some more. And I said, I cannot do this anymore. So I had to quit my job. So when I quit my job, 
I also had experience in other areas, right? By like being a part of these larger task force or initiatives or stakeholder groups, I was able to expand my network to individuals who were operating like in a macro space, but also in different disciplines and begin to exercise other skill sets outside of my clinical skills to be able to lean them lean into skill sets in like the macro space around project management or community engagement or organizing strategies um planning activities and initiatives being a part of grant writing grant monitoring all of these things um that I wouldn't have normally had access to if I stayed in my small role of just doing groups and individual sessions. So I really started volunteering more and getting connected with initiatives that are around these larger issues that were still important to me and related to my role, which then afforded me new relationships and exercise new skill sets to be able to make myself more marketable when it was time for me to look for new employment that was outside of the macro space. Um, and so that made a tremendous difference. So when I started looking for roles, I was like, well, I'm going to go ahead and shoot for the stars and like, what leadership role could I potentially take on? And so I had jumped from direct service doing clinical work with youth and um, their families into the role of a director at a nonprofit where I was um, responsible for the family and community engagement um, programs and department at that nonprofit. So when I made that jump, right, I had already had some skill sets. And if you really pay attention, as a direct service practitioner, you have a lot of skill sets that are important and that can transfer into like the meso space. So in between micro and macro practice and the macro space, you just got to lean on them a bit more. You already know how to implement programs, how to do program design, how to do project management, how to build out curriculums and activities, how to provide supervision, how to, you know, policy writing, especially program policy. You already likely know how to do all of these things, how to coordinate activities and events and plans and make connections. Like you have so many skills as a macro practitioner that transfer into these other areas. You just have to learn to talk about them better, write about them clearly on your resume and build more relationships with like community partners that you're already connected to through your direct service work. Like that was really the gate that opened up for me to be able to transition out of direct service practice, direct service. Cause at that moment, when I took on that new role as a director, I had never supervised a team. Like I never led a team, but I knew how to do it. Right. Because we understand the skill sets that are needed to cultivate a, a group <laughs> that could, you know, that you learn how to manage people and their expectations and their needs and find balance and give direction and be clear. Like we know how to do these things. Um, and then you just got to figure out how you just sell yourself to be able to do it. And so when I made the transition away from direct service, I really did have to deal with some guilt around letting direct service go um, because it wasn't easy because sometimes it feels like you're giving up and that like if you could just stay in a little bit longer you know you can help people blah 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 this that and the third and then also the guilt associated with like having a whole license to be able to do 
you know, therapy for individuals and families and groups and not doing it, knowing there's a need for people that look like you to offer that service. Right. Like I had to resolve that guilt because I certainly experienced it. And what I came to accept is like my skill sets are no longer needed in that space. Like, yeah, like I can do individual family and group therapy. I actually enjoy doing group and family work, individual, not so much, but like group and family work. That's my shit. However, where I'm needed right now is being a better bridge in between both of those worlds because I spent and I, I paid my dues. I did my time. I built trust. I built those relationships. Baby, like my name is solid in the circles that I run in and the work that I do in the city where I live. Like my name is solid. Like I'm trusted from the grassroots to the grass tops and I don't take that shit for granted. And I'm able to translate between both worlds. I know how to speak to the folks who are in the grassroots space. I don't know how to speak to the folks at the grass top. Like I know how to do both. And so that's where I am needed right now. I know that for a fact, like that is my strength. That's where, you know, I can have the greatest impact in this current phase and iteration of my career. I'm not needed on the ground anymore. And I really had to resolve guilt around that. And what I am always grateful for is I don't have I don't have anyone that questions me to my face about like why I'm not out in the streets, maybe in the ways how I used to be. Um, and there really seems to be a respect for the growth that I've been able to achieve because folks know like, hey, if I go get access to this meeting table group, whoever, all y'all are with me in my heart, in my mind, in my words. And I'm always thinking when I'm sitting around them tables, when I'm having these conversations, what I'm gonna get out of here to take back to my people. I'm always thinking that shit. I never go into a meeting thinking about what am I gonna get just for me? Hell no, I don't move like that. When I go into these spaces, I'm always, what am I gonna walk away from for, like, for my people? And so that's why I really know that is where I belong. That is where I belong. And so since I made the transition in 2019 away from direct service, I've been able to, you know, hone in on some more skills to be able to understand how to monitor grants, how to solicit RFPs. So those are like requests for proposals, um, how to determine how to do project narratives, how to do project management, organizing groups and activities and doing engagement, providing supervision to a team, how to manage people, how to engage partners and stakeholders and donors and funders, all of these things. And much of these skills come from the basic understanding of how to communicate to people, how to relate to people, how to disarm people, how to hear people, and how to keep your goddamn commitments. Like, do what you say, mean what you say. And so this isn't a matter of like, you need to go get more leadership training or more certificates. You can't, I do not believe that people can become better People can become a leader if they're not a leader already. No training, no certificate course, no nothing is going to give that to you. That's something you kind of already got to have. And in these trainings and these opportunities, you can lean more into what's already inside of you. And I'm going to tell you, like a big part of making that transition from direct service, so micro-level work into macro-level work, you got to stand fully in your skills and ability to lead. 
Because that's really what that space is about. Is like you're leading at these larger levels. But then also the mezzo, like being able to connect and lean into both of those worlds, which I love. I truly, truly love the most because I'm a small picture person. I have the ability to be a big picture person, which is like the dreaming part. I have the ability to, to dream and all of that shit. I promise you I do. But I'm not going to get caught up in somebody's dream. I'm really good at working with people who are big picture folk. Like, give me your dream. Let's figure out what is practical and possible. And let's put the plan together to start achieving and working towards that. And so as, you know, my comrade, Kristen, y'all may have heard Kristen on a previous podcast episode said, like, you got to have small picture people and big picture people talking to each other. My role is so that that can happen. And I love that. And if I would have never gave up direct service level work, I wouldn't have been, been able to find that role. And so I have been in this space of organ organizational leadership since 2019. It's where I belong for now, right? We'll see where I go from here. But in this moment, like organizational leadership is where I belong. I'm I am phenomenal when it comes to leading a team, organizing projects, uh, doing program implementation, project. I mean, program implementation and monitoring, forecasting, like community engagement, stakeholder engagement, donor engagement, funder engagement. Like I'm great at all of that shit and still being proximate and close to the people who I'm really in this for. And so I hope that that is something y'all, whoever is listening to this and you're trying to figure out like, how do I make a transition and away from direct service, at some point, you just got to decide to do it. You got to stand more firm in your skills and ability to lead and to talk about what you do and how your skills are transferable in all of these different settings. And then just go get that shit. There's no blueprint for making it happen. You got to believe that it is possible for you. You have to start leaning into these new skill sets and you really got to trust yourself that you can lead and that you can do. And then just go make that shit happen. Release the guilt that you're not giving up on nothing. You're not leaving nobody behind. You go and get what's next for you. And remember, you just taking the people along with you to your next level. To your next level. And that's okay. And I'm rooting for all of us because like I had said, it's been over, what, 15 100 days since I have written a clinical note, a progress note, an authorization, a quarterly, a monthly. I ain't written, I ain't wrote a piece of clinical shit in 1500 days. But baby, if I would, I could do it today, you give it to me, I could, I can bust that shit out because that is one thing that's conditioned in me. I know how to write my ass off when it comes to writing these notes. And maybe we could talk about that one day because I saw underneath that post that I had put online is like, some of y'all is writing entirely too much in your case notes and in your assessments and forgetting that that could be subpoenaed. And so there's a way to be descriptive and then say nothing all at the same time. So I guess we got to talk about that on a different episode on a different day. But that is the tales for the trap for this week. Let's go ahead and move into a good black word. All right. So a good black word for this week it's reflection for me, honestly. So um, in the last two weeks, I've been rereading, you know, one of my favorite books, can't get enough, but I wouldn't even say I reread it. I, I pick it up damn near every day. 
It's uh, Being Black, Zen and the Art of Living with Fearlessness and Grace by Angel Cotto Williams. I read it every day, at least a, a chapter or something. Sometimes, sometimes I stay on the same chapter all week to try to, you know, consume the lessons, the teachings, apply them to my life, process, meditate on, meditate on them, whatever. But the, not but, and um, where I have been this the last two weeks around the three poisons that are mentioned in this book, which are greed, anger, and ignorance. And as I'm reading through each chapter, about these three poisons of greed and of anger and of ignorance and how they can show up in our lives and this recognition that nothing good has ever been accomplished through greed, anger, or hatred and ignorance. And I'm reading them like, well, I don't, I felt so good because nothing inside of the chapters resonated with me, meaning like I don't experience greed, anger, or ignorance. Now, this does not mean there are times where I cannot be greedy, angry, ignorant, but in terms of holding these things at my center, at my core, that keep me from being able to be present and aware um, and of and caring for others, like I just, I don't have a place for greed, anger, or ignorance in my life. And I am so proud of myself because that took work. Like that shit didn't happen overnight for me by any means. But like to be able to have gone through these chapters for the last two weeks and really be like, yo, I ain't got none of that. <laughs> like I'm not dealing with no thoughts or feelings of greed, of anger or of ignorance. And I got to tell y'all, like that's the type of freedom that I knew was possible for me. But to actually know that I've achieved it is a different thing. And to be able to recognize it in other people when it is showing up and then producing all of these desires, which are then causing internal suffering, right? Like greed, anger, and ignorance are oftentimes one of the, the roots or the core of some internal suffering. And if we can learn to let those things go um, or acknowledge that we're experiencing them and then decide to release them, even if you have to keep doing that over and over and over again, you can get to this place of like alleviating yourself of internal suffering. And so, I also recognize that if I'm making a commitment every day, because when I get up in the morning, I go through my commitments and my vows. And so if I'm like, if I'm making a commitment every day to create no evil, to do good and to practice good towards others, I don't have any space in my life for greed, anger or ignorant, ignorance because greed, anger and ignorance produce no good, you know? And so... I suppose our good black word for the week is really reflecting on if, where, and how greed, anger, and ignorance may be showing up in your life or in the lives of those that you are connected to that may have an impact on you. And what is the work that needs to be done to acknowledge that they're existing, really sit with whatever type of internal suffering that may cause, if it's like thoughts of self-doubt or of not being happy or kind or caring and generous towards yourself and others and then make the determination of like are you ready to let that go and then maybe do that over and over and over again because sometimes you can't just let something go one time you gotta let it go several times until it begins to stick and it becomes your practice um every single day like y'all i am not lying when i say i'll get up every single day and i make a commitment every single day to create no evil, to do good, and to practice good towards others. And I make that a part of my life 
So then I become aware of all these other ways in which like internal suffering may kind of rise up from desires and to pay attention to like if these poisons are getting into my life because they're not going to serve me at all if they are. Um, and so that is my good black word from the, for the week. Maybe you get something from it. Maybe you don't. I'm unaware of it. I'm just hopeful you can hear what it's meant for you. And I believe that is all we have this week, y'all. As always, I'm grateful for your generosity, grateful to remain in community with y'all in the ways in which you allow. And please remember to take care of yourselves and your hearts so that we can take care of each other because I'm never going to stop saying it. We are literally all that we have. And y'all be well, and we will chat when we chat.